morning. I am uh, so excited about today. Uh, sorry about the delay in the baptism earlier. I know you'll be shocked by this. I was talking. Uh, and I was talking to our candidate, and I told her, and I, and I tell this to a lot of baptismal candidates, I said, listen, I'm going to speak a verse over you, but you won't get to hear it. All you'll hear is blah, 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 right? So I said, I want you to know the verse I'm going to speak over you is from Romans, buried in the likeness of Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. And then we just started talking about what it meant to be raised to walk in newness of life. And they're telling me they're waiting on you. I'm like, yeah, but newness of life, man. This is awesome. So thank you all uh, for bearing with it. What, what a great thing to see and a great thing to be a part of, especially with where we are in Mark, 8th chapter. Mark chapter 8. Turn there if you would. Go ahead and get ready for Mark 8.35. If you were here last week, you know we talked about some heavy stuff. I mean, it, it, to me... There is no spot in the New Testament, I think there's no spot in the New Testament where Jesus gives a more uh, somber, clear, uh, uh, difficult, can I, y'all, it's just a tough word. There's no other way to say it. Is there a tougher spot in the New Testament than when Jesus looks at his disciples and says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified. And if anybody wants to come after me, he's got to deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You talk about just throwing it out there. You talk about a line in the sand. Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I thought, I've been thinking about that all week. I mean, that is the call to Christian discipleship? Death to self? I mean, I've been thinking about, oh, can you imagine like, so let's take our electronic sign right out here on Highway 31, the church sign. First Baptist Church. Let's change it this week. First Baptist Church, come and be crucified. Like, is that, a, is that our marketing strategy? Is that, I mean, do we, do we talk like that as Christians? That's fundamentally what Jesus says it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so how did that land on the disciples? How did that land on you if you've been mulling that over? If you weren't here last week, I can catch you up to speed real fast. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Death to self. I mean, what, what does that mean? And then of all the things Jesus could say, we're going to look at this today. I don't know how it landed on the disciples. I don't know if they were discouraged. I don't know if he could see their discouragement. So Jesus did something that, to me, is extraordinary. He doesn't offer them any encouragement. He gives them four words, four things, four sentences, but they're not encouragements, technically. I mean, they may be encouraging and they may not, but that misses the point. Uh, he doesn't give four motivations. He doesn't give exhortations. He doesn't say, guys, this is a really difficult word, and this is coming down pretty hard, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you four, like, motivational posters, and you can, like, look at these. You can hang them up in your office, and they say things like perseverance, and it's a picture of, like, a, a, a golf course or something. Like, he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't, he doesn't offer any, and he doesn't offer a choice. Instead, he does this. He gives four laws. Unbreakable, immutable laws of the universe. Four truths, four just this is how the universe works. Just like there's physical laws and there's scientific laws, and you can trust them, you can believe in them or not. The law of gravity doesn't care if you believe in it or not when you jump. You know what I'm saying? Like, no, have you noticed that? Nobody ever comes up to you and says, excuse me, don't, don't, don't push your law of gravity on me, okay? I'm going to jump off this building, and I'm going to live my truth. Like, <laughs> 
You can live your truth all you want, bro. You're going down like the rest of us, right? The law of gravity is immutable. It doesn't change. That, Jesus says, like there's physical laws, there's also laws of the universe. So here's, here are four, this is the way things are. That's what he does. He lays it out. These are just four laws about how the universe works. Uh, uh, we do this sometimes. Um, okay, so, so there is a sentence in English. You have said it many times. I have said it. Neither you nor I have a clue what it means. You say this sentence all the time. You say this sentence, I have said it. You don't know what it means. I don't know what it means. Nobody knows what it means. Nobody knows how it got into English vernacular. It came recently. I didn't hear it until recently. And we all say it. And no one knows what it means. Here's the sentence. Well, it is what it is. It is what it is. What does that sentence mean? It is what it is. What are we speaking, Jedi? It is what it is. Like what, 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 you can't just put two linking verbs in a sentence and say it. Even the sentence doesn't know what it is, right? It is what it is. That is it's, it's nonsense. And yet we all say it. Why? I mean, I'm not saying don't say it. It's not wrong. I'll probably say it in this sermon. I'll say it today. But why do we say that? I think we say that when what we really mean, when what we really mean is, hmm. There is nothing that can be done to rectify this situation. But that sounds nerdy, so we just say, bro, it is what it is, right? And it's never, have you noticed, I have a friend, uh, Bone Hampton, he's a comedian, there's a whole thing on it is what it is. He's like, you never notice, it's never surrounded by good news. You notice that? <clears throat> Nobody's ever like, here's a check for $500. What? Well, how did I? It is what it is. Like, it's always like something terrible. It is what it is. Well, Jesus is saying, look. It is what it is. These are the realities of the universe. They're not true just for Christians. They're not true just for a certain time period. They're, they're true for every human that's ever lived throughout history. You ready? Here they are. There's four of them, and each one starts with the word four. You ready? Four, verse 35. Here we go. <coughs> here's, here's the first one. Four. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's the law of the universe. Mm. That's not true for some people. That's not true for Christians only. That's true for everybody. And that has been true throughout time and eternity. That is always true. That is how the world works. Jesus is saying, look, I know it is a natural human desire to want to prolong life. <clears throat> okay? To want to, and by the way, <clears throat> everywhere you hear uh, life and soul those words are interchangeable uh, in, this, in this passage. So whoever wants to keep his soul will lose it. Whoever wants to keep his life, the same Greek word, right? Whoever wishes to save his life. Jesus is saying this. Everybody wants to prolong their life. Everybody wants to, to somehow tap into eternity. Okay, here's how you do that. You'd think to hoard and to, to get for you and to amass a good life for yourself, that's how you make a good life. In fact, that's how you lose it. <clears throat> Boy, when you cough, really, any time as a preacher, it can be distracting. But in 2020, can't be doing that. <clears throat> so, thanks for bearing with me. I, I kind of, I guess I got a little too excited and out-preached my voice the first two. Jesus is saying, look... <clears throat> Here's a law of the universe. Now, let, let's look at the original hearers of, of this gospel. How would this have landed? Who, who first opened Mark? Who got to read the gospel of Mark first? It was the early Christians <laughs> other than Mark. Yeah, Peter told it to Mark, so Mark was second. Then, the early Christians in the year 50 or 60 AD all went to Scrolls a Million, 
And they purchased their copy of the Gospel of Mark. So this is only 20 or 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. You with me? And so then, what are they going through? They're going through, like, legit persecution. Emperor Nero is the emperor in Rome. He is the Caesar. He's the boss. And he's persecuting Christians. He's going around. He's rounding up Christians, torturing them, sometimes crucifying them. He thought it would add insult to injury to, to kill the Christians in the way of their, their so-called dead leader. He thought Jesus was dead by crucifying. So can you imagine Nero and his secret police show up at your door? We hear that your family are followers of the way, followers of Jesus. You can't believe this is happening. You've gone white as a ghost. You've heard this happens. Yes, that's right. And so um, we'll give you a little test here. We're going to find out who's a follower of Jesus or not. Here's all, and this is, what they do, this is what they would do to the Christians. They would say, here's all you have to do. Here's a libation offering. It just means a drink offering. If you will pour out this offering, which offering to anything other than God is idolatry. So if you'll pour out this offering and you'll say three little words, you can all go home. Here are the three words. All you have to say is this, Caesar is Lord. If you say Caesar is Lord and pour out that drink, everything's good. And the Christians were then, in that moment, forced with a decision. What do we do? I mean, you know, I guess God would forgive. I get, eh, like, but, uh, you know, you're looking at your kids. You don't want to die. But Jesus is, Jesus is saying, in that moment, in that moment, listen, this is counterintuitive. I know it feels like if you pour out the offering and you say, Caesar is Lord, I know it feels like you can prolong your life. And there's a sense in which you can prolong your physical life. But I'm telling you, there is a law in the universe that kicks in. There's a law that's in effect. If you lose your life for my sake in the gospel, you will find resurrection life. So if you sell out, you'll actually end up losing your life. You'll spend the rest of your life in shame and regret and what might have been. Or if you stay true to me, even if it costs you your life, you will find eternal life. So you lose, you're, you're either going to live connected to death or you'll die connected to life. Now, which is it? That's a law of the universe. You break it at your own peril. That, 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 that's it. Now, how does that apply to us today? You, you're not going to be crucified if you say Jesus is Lord. And many of the Christians, by the way, they went to their death because they said Jesus is Lord. No, 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 you got to say Caesar is Lord. I'm sorry, you got to do what you got to do. Jesus is Lord. You understand, we're going to kill you and your whole family. Then it is what it is. <laughs> but Jesus is Lord. You see? Here's the thing, in 2020 in Coleman, Alabama, you're not gonna be crucified for saying Jesus is Lord. If you go up and down Highway 31 and you yell Jesus is Lord, people will probably honk and say, amen, <laughs> right? We live in the Bible Belt, you're not gonna be crucified. Ah, then how does this still apply to us? This is still an unbreakable law of the universe. Listen to these words of Ray Stedman. Here's what Jesus is saying. If this is what you want to prolong your life, I'll tell you how to get it. There's two attitudes toward life which are possible and you can only have one or the other. One attitude is save your life now, hoard it, clutch it, cling to it, grasp it, get a hold of yourself, take care of yourself, trust yourself. And in every situation, your number one chief and major concern is what's in it for me and my family. View the world, this, this life philosophy I call the big barrel of live crabs. One way to live life is to view all of life and all your relationships as a big barrel of live crabs. And only a few of us are going to crawl our way to the top and maybe get out. The rest of y'all going to Red Lobster. But if we can, be, oh, if we can make our way out, and here's how that attitude toward life works. It's very simple. If I have to push your crabby life down with my little crustacean pseudopodia, whatever, that's not, whatever. If I have to push your crabby life down for my crabby life to get up, if you have to be disadvantaged for me to win, then I'm sorry. It is what it is. <laughs> then that's how it's got to be. It's every man for himself. Life's a big barrel of crabs. The alternative. 
is to do what Jesus says. Give up your life. Lose your life. Crucify your selfish desires. And then, here's the irony of it all. You look like your whole life you're getting disadvantaged. You look like people are taking advantage of you. You look like you're giving up. But in the end, in the end, here's the crazy thing. The people who scrape and hoard and claw and greed and, and, and looking out for number one, in the end, you find that all, everything you tried to grasp in life has slipped through your fingers. And you've ended up with a handful of cobwebs and ashes, dissatisfied, hollow and empty and mocked by what you'd hoped to get. But lose your life for my sake in the Gospels. Take up your cross and follow me and you find inner peace and a sense of worth and meaning and purpose. Now, I know Jesus is saying, look, 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 I, I know this is counterintuitive. Jesus is saying, I know. All we, doesn't it make sense to get more in this life, to protect yours, to look out for number one? I know. Whereas, you know, following Christ, preaching the gospel, that's the stuff that leads to trouble and, and less of a life. It seems like it would be the other way around. I know. But he's saying, you've got to, in those moments... You've got to trust that law. Trust that that is true for all time eternity more than you trust what it feels like. I mean, he's, he's, he's looking at, 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 at early Christians who are like, this sure feels like I'm going to my crucifixion and it's all a waste. He goes, you've got, in that moment, it feels like you're losing your life. You've got to trust with everything you've got. You've got to trust that Jesus' words are true. You're actually going to find it. You've got to trust for every uh, missionary who's left these shores to go, you've got to trust he who loses his life will find it. For every parent of a missionary who's seen that child pack up that U-Haul and go away, you've got to trust he who saves his life will lose it, who loses his life will find it. For every step of obedience, for every act of generosity, for every gift, for every time you've been disadvantaged that another might be advantaged, you've got to trust that true. You've got to trust that law's true because it sure doesn't feel true. And that's huge. That's how laws work. That's why Jesus gives us laws, not encouragements. Watch. Feeling secure is not always the same as being secure. Now, I can illustrate, but I run a risk. I actually run it fairly often. And here's the risk I run. I'm worried that I I have what I think is the perfect way to illustrate this point. But I'm worried that it will make sense to me and only me. And that can be very lonely. But here it is. I offer it to you. I was watching a YouTube uh, uh, physics lecture because apparently I need a hobby. And uh, this guy is given the physics lecture, and he says he believes in the law of physics. And he, he called the law of conservation of energy the holiest law in all of physics. And when he said holiest, I was like, sermon illustration. What he was saying was this, energy has to go somewhere, the conservation of energy. And so he said, I believe in the law of the conservation of energy so much, I'm willing to stake my life on it. There's a lecture hall of like 300 students in this college physics class, and he's got this bowling ball suspended from the ceiling, much higher than our ceiling in this great lecture hall. And it's like, uh, it says it's 15.5 kilograms. Who knows what that is? Metric, am I right? And he takes this thing, and it looks like a massive bowling ball, and he takes it, and it's suspended way high in the air, and he walks it like 50 or 75 feet on one side of the lecture hall. This thing's going to swing like hundreds of feet and come back. And he says, now, if I don't add any force to this weight, 
if I don't add any force, then the law of the conservation of energy is such that right now it has no kinetic energy. It has gravitational, which is, makes it potential energy, which will be transferred to kinetic energy, which will be transferred back to potential energy. And because of the conservation of energy, it cannot return to a place higher than where it started. And so when I release it, I need absolute silence because I can't add any force. Because if I add force, but if I do it right, it'll swing out, it'll swing back. And though it may graze my chin, it will not crush my skull. And I'm sitting here like, is he serious? And he pulls the thing back. He asks for silence from the crowd. And he says, listen, if I add any force to this, this will be my last lecture. You know? And I'm like, is, is dude really about to drop this way? And I'm like sitting here watching this going, dude, there, his, his face is about to get crushed in. There's about to be blood and teeth. I'm like, kids, kids, get in here. Mom's like, what are you doing? I'm like, sermon research. And the guy pulls this weight back. He asks for complete silence. And he says, I'm, in fact, this, I thought this is incredible. He said, in fact, I'm going to close my eyes because I'll get too scared and I'll move. And if I move, and so, so I don't even want to see it because I believe in the laws of physics. I believe in the law of the conservation of energy. So here I go. Three, two, one. And he drops it. I mean, you could have heard a pin drop. I'm watching this. You can YouTube this. The thing swings out like 100 feet. And when that thing starts firing back at him, I mean, someone, visibly, someone audibly screams in the crowd. And when it comes back up, it stops a half inch from his chin, keeps going. He walks away and he says, physics works, and I am alive to prove it. And everybody's like, what's my point? He did not feel very safe when a 15.5 kilogram weight was careening toward his face. So what did he do? He trusted in a law that was greater than his feelings. What's the application for you? Is it not clear? You're going to face choices this week where to give up yourself certainly does not feel safe. It feels the opposite of safe. I'm asking you, will you trust in Christ's word? Will you trust that he understands how the universe works? Come on, he knows the molecular structure of fish and bread. He, can, he knows the molecular structure of water. He can walk on water. He's smarter than Einstein. Do you trust him? Do you trust your Lord? Because if you do, then that's how he says the universe works. And you can stake your life on that no matter what it feels like this week. If you're not convinced by physicists, perhaps you will listen to a dear friend of mine, C.S. Lewis. You may have read this. It's a famous passage. He's illustrating what Jesus said by whoever loses his life will save it. Here's how Lewis explicates this text. He writes, I put the words up so you could follow along. Give, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose yourself, lo excuse me, lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. What does that look like for you this week? Can I just make the most practical suggestion I know how? Put to death your right to be offended. What right do you have to be offended this week? Let's start there. Some of you get offended so easily. What, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the crucified Savior, what on earth do you tell me do you have a right to be offended about? Well, they did me wrong. Who is your Lord? Who do you follow? You follow the one who the most wrong was done to him. And he says, take up your cross, follow me. Deny yourself. Yeah, I know. 
They get away with it. Or well, what right do you have to? Listen, listen, listen. Let's get, let's, let's get as personal as we can. Some of you this Thursday will be gathered around the table with your family and your loved ones. You're bound to be offended politically, aren't you? Oh, nervous laughter? Okay. What right in that moment? What right do you have to be offended? I'm being serious. What right? I got my right. They wronged me. Do you? You are a follower, I'll say it again, of the crucified Messiah. Take up your, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Let go of that defensiveness. What right do you have to hold a grudge? What right? Who are you not to forgive? What are you in a big barrel of crabs? Is that your existence? Or do you trust in the law? Lose yourself. Lose your life and find it. That's the law of the universe. Well, the next law of the universe, <clears throat> they, they all start with four. The, next, the first one. He who wishes to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. Second law is expressed as a rhetorical question. Four, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? In other words, what if, if the choice is give away your soul, what could possibly make that worth it? You ever, uh, you ever have to make a tough decision? And uh, usually the tough decisions are not between evil and good. Those are easy. It's between two things that are equally evil and you have to pick the lesser two evils or two things that are equally good. It's tough. So what do you do? You make a pro-con list. You say, all right, all right. If I take, okay, if I take this job or I could go be self-employed, huh? if I take this job, it's got good benefits. There's a lot of security. I get a steady paycheck. Oh, but over here, if I go self-employed, I'll be able to be my own boss. And there's room for incredible opportunity, but there's not that security. And, uh, and so you're choosing, you're making pros, you're making cons, right? Uh, you do this in relationships when you're single and you're dating, right? So imagine you're a young lady and you're dating and you're thinking, well, this fella, he's, he's got a good job and he's very stable and seems like a really upstanding citizen. This guy over here, he doesn't have a plan and he's got a motorcycle and my mama hates him. Oh, both good choices. <laughs> oh, it's tough. It's tough. So what do you do? You make pro-con lists, right? And you say, well, here, here are some things in favor. Here are some things not. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you're making a decision about whether or not to sell out or stand up for Jesus Christ, if the con is lose your soul, what on earth could possibly go in the pro column that I would outweigh that? Nada. There is nothing. You cannot put a price on the human soul. He's saying, well, 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 what if you gain the whole world? There is a... Um, there's a, uh, uh, no one, in my opinion, who's done more insightful thinking about idols. That's what he's really talking about. Instead of going after God, I want to go after the things that are going to give me a good life for comfort or security or control and all these things. If you chase after idols, no one has done better thinking in the last 50 years, in my opinion, on idols of the heart than Tim Keller. And listen to what uh, Pastor Keller writes. Every culture points to certain things and says, if you gain that or acquire or achieve these then you'll have a self then you'll know you're valuable every culture traditional cultures would say you're nobody unless you gain the respectability and legacy of family and children individualistic cultures are not so much worried about that that in there you're nobody unless you gain a fulfilling career that brings money reputation and status let me say that in my analysis of Coleman, Alabama, we're actually a unique blend of both idols. 
I believe we have some traditional idols we're tempted by and individualistic culture idols. The traditional culture idols, family, legacy, you know, who are you connected to? Who do you know? And it was status that way. Then you're somebody. Or uh, uh, were you able to make a name for yourself? Money, power, achievement. I think we're tempted in our city by, interestingly, both traditional uh, cultural idols and individual cultural, individualistic cultural idols. Either way, it doesn't matter. They're still idols. And Jesus said, no matter what, they'll never work. Even if you got it, even if you gain the whole world, it won't be big enough or bright enough to cover up the stain of inconsequentiality left by the fall. No matter how many things you gain, it's never enough to make you sure of who you are. If you're building your identity on, well, somebody loves me or I've got a good career, well, then if anything goes wrong with that relationship or that career, you fall apart. You feel like you don't have a self. I mean, that's really an insightful thing to think about. In other words, whatever idol you're after, if it's not God, only one of two things. You'll either get your idol or you won't. And either way, you're miserable. Look, if you make money your idol and you fail to reach that level of money status, you're miserable. If you make a relationship your idol and that's everything to you, you put it above God, above everybody else, and you don't get that relationship, you're insufferable. If you make being right all the time, some of you, that's your idol, it's pride and self-righteousness, you've got high standards for yourself. You're a high achiever. And you cannot understand why everybody, you meet the standards, why can't everybody else meet your standards? Oh, but if you ever fail yourself, if you ever fail to meet those standards, you have a come apart. You are insufferable to be around. Why? Because when you fail your idol, there's no mercy. There's no grace. Even worse, if you get your idol. If you make money your idol and you get it, listen to me, the saddest, sickest day of your life is when you finally get all that money only to realize that you're still miserable. You make relationship your idol. The saddest, sickest day of your life is when you finally get or achieve that relationship and you realize it still didn't fulfill. The saddest, sickest day of your life is when you make youth and beauty your idol. And say you do become beautiful. Well, then what? You realize that the idol of beauty pours out its wrath slowly, year after year, as we wrinkle and thicken. It's a cruel idol, you see? And you're miserable and wretched because you believe, that these, you believe these things were functional saviors. Make your kids or your spouse your idol, and the most miserable day is when you realize that they cannot bear the freight of being God. What do I mean by making your kid an idol? It's when your heart goes from, I want my kid to, go, to do well, that's healthy and fine, to I need my kid to do well. Why? Because they're a reflection on me, and they're a reflection, and they're my, and they're my self-worth. And, they're, and I'm looking at my kid going, why can't you be better? Don't you know you're my functional savior? My kid's like, I, I, I thought I was just playing soccer. <laughs> why? You'll end up crushing the kid and crushing you, because that kid was never meant to be God. He's meant to be a kid. You understand? Make anything your own. But here's the difference. Here's the difference. Go after God, and if you get God, when you seek God and you get God, you get peace and fulfillment and 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 and. And peace that passes all understanding. And watch this. And if you fail God, there's grace. He gives you mercy, forgiveness. Well, there is a nothing. There is nothing in the world. There's a great difference between feeling secure and being secure. And all I wanted to say was there's nothing in the world, even if, it pro, even if you gained the whole world, if it cost your soul, it's not worth it. So what is the price of a soul? Well, that's Jesus' next law. Keep your life, you lose it. Lose your life, you find it. If you gain the whole world, it's not worth your soul. Four, 
what can a man give in return for his soul? Another translation says, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Another says, how can you redeem a soul back, right? So how do you sell a soul, or if you've already sold it, how do you get it back? He's asking, what is the current currency exchange rate, souls for dollars? Go. Or euro, or whatever. What does it cost? What is the price of a soul? Or, or when your life is spent, when you come to the end of your life, no amount of money can buy it back. You don't, Jesus doesn't allow time travel where you get to come back to this point and live your life again. So right now, every day, you're deciding what is the value of a soul. Um, it's an old commentary, so you have to forgive the these and the thous, but Matthew Henry, hundreds of years ago, wrote a commentary on this verse. Listen to what he said. Thousands lose their souls for the most trifling gain or the most worthless indulgent, nay, often from mere sloth and negligence. Now this is old language, what's he saying? He's saying some people have failed to live for Christ. Some people have denied Christ. They have given up their soul and gotten nothing in return. I mean, we know the price of a soul. We, we know, it's the, it's the price that, here's how Matthew Henry says it. Whatever is the object for which men forsake Christ, that is the price at which Satan buys their souls. What's Matthew Henry's point? And sometimes he's getting them cheap. He's getting them cheap. You say, you, there can't literally be a price on the soul. There's absolutely. I, I, I'll give you an example. For Judas Iscariot, the price of his soul was exactly quantified at 30 pieces of silver. Isn't that something? At 29 pieces of silver, he'd rather keep his soul. But that 30th was enough. Not 31, not 29. At 30 pieces of silver, that's the price. Now, we look at Judas and we go, how could someone deny Christ? How could someone sell out for 30 pieces of silver? And what Matthew Henry's saying, and I absolutely agree with him, is that I've known people who've sold out for less. They didn't even get the silver. Wait a minute, why didn't you follow Christ? Why didn't you, go, why didn't you serve him? Why didn't, I don't know, man, I just lived a life of comfort. I so you're telling me you gave up your soul and all you got in return is Netflix? I mean, if you're going to give up your soul, at least get a fiddle in Georgia or something, something, you got nothing? We laugh at Judas Iscariot, and I'm telling you, we have, you, that's the price of your soul. What is your selling out point? In every transaction, let, let, let's talk for a moment about macroeconomics. Since I've already talked about physics, let me talk about something else I know nothing about. Let's talk about economic theory. If I understand correctly, basic economics work like this. Um, there is a, there's a moment, there's a point, right? I have this thing, this tchotchke or this trinket. It is a jewelry box with a unicorn ballerina on it or whatever it is, my, my collectible, okay? And I love it, I have it. You have a big, huge pile of money. There comes a point at which I love my little trinket. I love it so much, it's so dear to me. But as your stack of money gets bigger and bigger and bigger, I'm like, I would rather have that stack of money than this trinket. And though you love my trinket, you also love your stack of money. And so you say, well, at this, but if, if, if eventually there comes a point where you would rather have my trinket than your stack of money, and I would rather have your stack of money than my trinket, if we can agree on exactly where that stack is, we make a trade, and it's called eBay. Now, if we make that trade, that's it. It's supply and demand. Here's the thing, though. Sometimes, sometimes, the price at which, so that's really what anything's valued at. So your soul, I know your soul. Your soul is whatever you would sell out. That's, that's, that's the worth of your soul. That's the price of your soul. Whatever it can be bought for. And just let me say this right here. You can't buy it back. 
You know why? Because Satan knows the price of a soul. He knows the value of a soul. So when he gets a soul, he's not getting it back, even if you, as Jesus said, gained the whole world. It's very important. He's not going to sell it back because he knows what it's worth. Why? Because there's a difference in price and valuation. Now, price and valuation, what am I talking about? There's two people, two groups of people who really understand this. Sometimes something's priced here, but it's valued here. The first group of people who understand this are finance majors. And finance majors do all this work to try to look for an inefficiency in the market between price and earnings ratio. And so they're always looking for something that's undervalued, whether it's a corporation or whether it's a stock or whatever. Find something that's priced here, but it's actually valued here. And if you can get in the market quick enough and gobble up shares of that, then you'll have something that's priced here and it's valued here. So one group of people that truly understand this principle are finance majors. The other group of people are, you know who you are, are yard sale hunters. You know who you are. Some of you have lost for the rest of the sermon because you're like, oh, yeah, I got to make the big score. Yeah. And your whole dream, you dream about walking up to some yard sale way out in the county and you find some piece of artwork and you're like, oh, this old thing? Oh, here's five, ten bucks. And you walk out, it's a Van Gogh or whatever. You know, you buy some rusty old flute only to learn it was played by Mozart. If Mozart played the flute, you get it. Underestimate. The ultimate, Jesus is saying, the ultimate price valuation underestimation, the ultimate buy low is a human soul. And Satan is gobbling up souls. He is buying souls for nothing. Jesus says, what if you gain the whole world? Don't do it. Don't sell out. It's not worth it. What if you gain the whole world? What if the opportunity was so great if you just deny Christ? The opportunity to be so great, you could, what if your life was on the line? He says, even and especially when your life is on the line, he who seeks to lose his life will find it. What if you gain the whole world? Would it be worth your soul? Um, well, for that, to answer that question, you would have to know what is the whole, worth, whole earth valued at. And so I Googled this week, what is the monetary value of the entire earth? I did a lot of research for this sermon. I hope you're seeing this. Believe it or not, there are apparently lots of other people who need a hobby because many, many people have answered this question. And they have all sorts of ways to value the monetary value of the entire earth. One is, what would it take to rebuild it? So if you had to go get a subcontractor to excavate the Grand Canyon, for example, you know, what would it cost? Some are like, well, what would it cost to just lease the earth? What would it cost to rent? So that's one way to acquire it. Another's like, well, it's an impossible question because nobody on Mars wants to buy it. You know, all this, uh, that may or may not have been my comment. Here's the point. Uh, at the end of the day, um, uh, somebody has come up with a number that the va monetary value of the whole earth is 3,000 trillion pounds. Of course, of course the Brits are going to sell our planet. Uh, another geologist said five quadrillion dollars. What's my point? Five quadrillion dollars is not worth one eternal soul. Stay true to your Lord. Stay true to your Lord. For, you understand? These are laws of the universe. These are not commands. Jesus, Jesus tells them, he's like, I don't, I don't know if there's a way encouraged. I don't care if you're encouraged or not. This is the way it is. A man can never buy his soul back. A woman can never buy her soul back. Once you've sold out, that's it. Four. Last one. And bring this to a close. Four. Whoever is ashamed of me, this is a law of the universe, unbreakable. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Could there be a more solemn warning? I'll be honest with you guys, this is the verse that gives me chills. Jesus is warning his disciples, don't shrink away from a crucified Messiah. Don't be ashamed of me. He's telling the Christians in 60 AD, when Nero comes knocking on your door, just so you know, if you deny me, I'll remember that. You'll be denied. 
It's a law of the universe. It's how it works. The earthly courts are frightening, but you should fear God. And it's absolutely true. If everything I've said is true, if these are the laws of the universe, then you should absolutely stand up for me. You can't have it both ways. You want to be a friend of the world or you want to be a friend of God? Because if you're going to choose friendship with the world, you lose friendship with God. And if you want to be a friend of God, you're bound to lose some friendship with the world. Jesus does not say confessing him will make you happier. He says confessing me will save you from God's judgment. We'll come back to that. And finally, a promise, because I imagine the disciples felt like, like we feel when we hear these words. Yeesh. And so he gives a promise. He says in 9-1, he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here, some, not all, not you, Judas, but some of you will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come in power. All this suffering, all this yielding to others, always, you're the barrel of crabs guy that's getting pushed down and down. It looks like weakness. It looks like, uh, 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 you know, it's never going to go your way. I promise you're going to see the resurrection. Not all of you, but some of you will see me come back in glory. Some of you will see the Holy Spirit descend at Pentecost, the birth of the church. You will see the kingdom come in power, and you will realize some of you won't get to see it, but some of you will see this law works. You'll get to see the evidence, just like the people who saw that physics lecturer. You'll get to see. When I'm back from the grave, you'll remember these words, and you'll remember, by the way, that I said I will rise again in three days. You seem to have already overlooked that. But I'm following these laws of the universe too, Jesus is saying. I'm about to trust my Father when it looks like it could go an easier way. I'm about to lay down my life, and I'm believing I will find it. He will raise me up. I'm not immune from the laws of this universe. I'm going to follow these. So, remember these. Because I need you to deny yourself, disciples. Take up your cross and follow me. Well, that's... uh, that's it. There's, there's four laws and a promise. And if these four laws are true, if these four things are true, that whoever loses life will find it, but if you find your life, you'll lose it. Uh, 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 that if you gain the whole world, it's not worth your soul. You can't buy your soul back. You can't redeem it. And if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. If that's true, then the only logical thing to do for any person is to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus Christ as his disciple. That's it. That is the most logical thing to do. Will you do it this week? You examine ourselves. I've asked the musicians to come and Brandon lead us in time of reflection and response. I told you last week, these are serious words. I can't imagine a, a tougher word. As, as Brandon prepares, listen, the, 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 in my opinion, only one thing needs to be said to, to tie all this back together. Um, what do you do with what happened to the disciples? Follow me, follow me. Peter was standing right there. Peter's the one that said, oh, you know, you're the, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says, listen, here's the deal. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. And you're going to be tempted to run away. You're going to be tempted to, to, to deny me. So you need, to make, you need to understand, if you sell out, if you sell your soul, a couple things you need to know. Number one, Whoever's ashamed of me and my words, I'll be ashamed of you. You don't know me, I won't know you. Any questions? That's an unbreakable law of the universe. And a second one is the one right before it. And and once you do it, there's no getting it back. If you look at verse 37, he says, what can a man give in return for a soul? Once that transaction's made, that's it. It's done. You're done. You're out. So, So, everybody understand? These are the laws. This is in Peter's mind. And I think that's why. That's why. Uh, a few, uh, a short, short while later as they're on their way to Jerusalem. That's why Jesus said, because he's thinking about this, that's why when Jesus said, 
The fact of the matter is, when I go to Jerusalem, all of you are going to get scared and scatter. You're going to deny me. That's why Peter remembered this, and he goes, oh, no, 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 no. Do you remember what Peter said? Remember what Peter said? He said, even if all these other jokers deny you, not me, Lord. You count on me, Lord. I will never deny you, never. And what did Jesus say to him? You remember what Jesus said to him? Jesus said to him, and I quote, it is what it is, Peter. No, he didn't say it. What did he say? He said, I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will not only deny me, you will deny me three times. What's the deal with the three times? Proving it's not a fluke, it's not an accident. This is premeditated, headlong, running first into denial. You'll deny me once, you'll deny me twice, and the third time, just for good measure, do you remember how he denied him? The third time, he didn't just deny him. The third time, he took it a step further. It says, he yelled out a loud curse and denied knowing him. Now, what's the deal with the curse? Was he just saying a dirty word? No, it's much worse. The curse was an ancient way of taking an oath. You would call down literally a curse of God to show everyone how seriously you took your truth. And so you would say something like this, may the wrath of God fall on me. May I be under the curse of God. May the wrath of God fall on me if I'm lying. I tell you, I never knew Jesus of Nazareth. Peter straight up denies knowing him. He straight up breaks Mark 8, 38. And he sold out. So how does he, how does, how is Peter still a Christian? You know what I'm saying? Like, how, how does Peter get to heaven? How does Peter get back on the team? Like, I don't understand. The whole premise is those are unbreakable laws of the universe. How do you stand in front of Jesus and say, may the wrath of God fall on me if I'm lying, and then lie? You know the answer, don't you? Because you know that the wrath of God did fall that dreadful Good Friday. But not on Peter. It was diverted, wasn't it? And the wrath of God fell not on Peter, but it fell squarely across the shoulders of the sinless, spotless Lamb of God on Calvary's cross. And those laws are unbreakable, y'all. They're unbreakable. And so the laws of the universe were broken, but they were broken across the back of the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, Jesus. And for the one who said, I never knew you, Jesus, knowing that Peter deserves that condemnation, he deserves to be cut off, Jesus, out of love, looks up at his heavenly Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, don't you see? He was receiving the rejection of Mark 8, 38 that should have gone to Peter. He said, oh, let it fall on me. Let me be cut off from my heavenly Father so that Peter never would be. So that he could be forgiven. Because when I say you can't redeem a soul, I didn't tell you the whole truth. You can't redeem a soul. Oh, but bless God, there is one who can redeem a soul. And when you couldn't buy your soul back, there is one who could. But it would cost him everything. And that's why when Peter wrote his letter in 1 Peter, I have no doubt that the ink with which he wrote 1 Peter was smeared with his tears when he wrote, we've been redeemed, not with corruptible things like silver and gold. There's only one thing that could buy us back. And he wrote this word. He wrote this word. You can look it up in 1 Peter. We've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. And I ask you, church, isn't it precious to think his life for yours? We know exactly what a soul is worth. My soul cost the blood of the only begotten Lamb of God. That's what a soul is worth.
That's what he paid to redeem for himself a people. Oh, the love of God. Oh, the grace. That means, yes, this is a hard word. It means we've got to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow me. But it also means that's the most logical thing to do. Why? Because there's hope for the lowliest of sinners. I've denied him. I've, 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 I've done every one of these sins. I've broken every one of these laws. But my Savior has bought me back by his grace. Same for you. Well, if you're not a believer, that today would be that day. And if you are a believer, return to your first love. Come to him. What is it? What, what are you doing? What if, what if you gain the whole world, but if you lose the most important thing about you, don't, don't do it. Don't do it. Mark 8, these are not easy words, but they're the right words for us for this moment, for our church. Let it pierce your heart. Let it convict you. I, I'm praying that God will use Mark 8 to grab your heart. I hope he doesn't let it go. I hope he works on you all week like he did me. Some of you, I, I wonder, are there some of you that are wrestling with a call to ministry, a call to missions? Is that why the Lord put this so heavy on my heart that you've been saying no and that you say yes? Uh, others of you, some step of generosity or you're struggling with some step of faith. You know the right thing. It just costs too much. You don't need an encouragement. You need the laws of the universe to be spoken. Here they are. What if you gain the whole world, lose your soul? You see? So I'm praying that God doesn't let us go and grips us with these, uh, these words. The word of God will do that. It's living, living and active. But let's pray together. God, grip us with the words of Mark 8 and don't let us go until you've done your work in us, starting with me. God, grant to us that we would not be uh, fools who would, who, would, who would sell our souls for a trifling. Grant to us, O oh Lord, that we would have the proper valuation of a human soul and that every person we meet, we would see, here's a person, Christ, you died for. God, grant to us that we might deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow me, forgive us when we live like a barrel of crabs, stepping on others to get ahead. God, grant that we would be disadvantaged, that others might be advantaged, you know. Grant that we would be the ones who lost or gave up our right to be offended so that others might find you and find the freedom in you. Grant us this, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.